This is the Seminole Wars Authority. Hello and welcome to our fourth installment in Martial Matters of the Second Seminole War, Manning the Militia. In this episode, what does it mean to say citizens of a free state? What does it mean to say that the right to keep and bear arms is supreme law? I'll have the scholars weighed in. What did the founders say? And how does all this encompass the manning and use of the militia? We continue our discussion with Jesse Marshall. Jesse Marshall, welcome back to the Seminole Wars Authority. Thank you, Patrick. Jesse, let's begin again. What does it mean that the U.S. Constitution is the supreme law of the land, including its Second Amendment, which guarantees that the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed? The U.S. Constitution is supreme law. While there may indeed be concurrent powers, the federal government's power is supreme. So the extent to make it simple in that period, it was simple. It was a non-starter because the Federal Militia Act alone of 1792 made clear that at least every free white man in 1845 had to have a military weapon by federal law. When you come to the 1830s and you read Justice Story's explanation of the Second Amendment, even though it is somewhat watered down from the language of the founding, the right to keep their arms is fundamental to preventing usurpations of government and the abuse of government. It's the citizen generally. The concurrent powers issue is one that seems to have been brought up, at least in Virginia's ratifying debate during that period. Some of the opponents, some of the anti-federalists, they just couldn't understand. They said, no, clearly if the federal government is going to have this Second Amendment encoded in the Supreme Law, then we might as well not even have a state law to that effect. And again, John Marshall's point was, nope, 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 it's concurrent power. Many of the states also have keep and bear arms in their constitutions? Yes, that's a good point. I mean, the language of the amendment itself is similar to some other state constitutions. Not identical, similar, but that was, again, part of the anti-federalist argument. They said, well, um, the states already have some of these provisions. Why does the federal government need? Well, the obvious answer to that is if a state is no longer a free state, right, because the Second Amendment mentions it, go back to the revolution. If a state is suddenly thrown under the authority of a arbitrary royal governor, for example, like Georgia and South Carolina, or even New York during much of the war, New York was occupied, New York City, then obviously any state constitutional provisions are out the window. So how does one get support by law to individual rights or to do so lawfully under arms? Well, that's where the federal constitution steps in. The reason why a state would pass militia laws of its own would be to more fully uniform its own militia. When I say uniform, I don't mean in clothing. I mean, again, a uniformity of arms, discipline, and organization. Because in any given state, there are going to be differences in population and differences in the economies. So while Congress's 1790s laws were very general regarding arms, discipline, and organization, you'd find that the laws of several states and their constitutions would be a little more direct about the means by which the militia of the state would be organized into those companies and battalions and regiments. Would they be so organized by counties? Or would they have separate districts that are drawn irrespective of county boundaries and so forth? So these things the state would have to work out. The states have a power over the arms of the militia of the states. In other words, again, the territory of Florida could purchase or procure arms 
for its militia as it saw fit. Of course, the obvious would be that they should conform to the standard that the federal government preferred, but they could be superior to that standard as well. The states also have a power over the armament of state troops where Congress might allow them to keep them. But the states don't have any power over the arms of U.S. troops, and they don't necessarily have the power over the U.S. arms that might be in the hands of state militiamen that are in federal service. You can also assume from that that the states don't have power over the arms of the people of the United States beyond those of their state organized as state militia where the United States does not otherwise provide by law for the militia's arms. And when I speak of arms, again, I'm speaking specifically arms as the guns or weapons that are incidental to repelling invasion, resisting insurrection, and enforcing the laws. It's important to remember that people are the source of all authority, including constitutional authority in the United States. Once we have the Constitution, and the power is not delegated through the constitutions of the states or that of the United States are essentially retained by the people. There are enumerated rights in the Constitution, was well understood, but the right itself was not delegated through the Constitution to the government. A power relative to the right is delegated to it. So again, the Second Amendment, you see, clarifies that the power of the government is to prevent the infringement of the right to keep and bear arms. How do the various levels of federalism help thwart usurpations of the right to keep and bear arms? The shared powers over the militia between the federal and state governments and the general armament of the people are the evident mode of confounding such attempts to overthrow constitutional civil government. Besides the federal government, who holds the power to prevent an infringement of the right? So there's a power against infringement delegated to the state through their constitutions. The people retain a certain power concurrently without reference to any particular constitution. In other words, in their liberty, we recall the, the hunting shirts of the Culpeper Minute Battalion, which included the later Chief Justice John Marshall emblazoned with liberty or death and the various flags carried by numberless Patriot Corps during the Revolution with the same. That power over arms would not be affected by the withdrawal of the powers preventing infringement from the United States via the Second Amendment necessarily. And I say that again because even if the Second Amendment were modified, the Militia Clause remains and the federal government still has the power to determine who will be armed with what so far as regards the militia. Jesse, to clarify for our listeners, abolishing the Second Amendment would not abolish the right to keep and bear arms. The specific delegated power to the federal government exists beyond the Constitution. And if I understand you correctly, the reason it became an enumerated right is to formally enlist the government through its supreme law in ensuring the right would not be infringed. Assume that the Second Amendment were repealed. The primary national goal of preventing the infringement of the people's right and thereby securing the free states would be removed as a federal power, potentially. But the government of the United States wouldn't necessarily be able to infringe the right to keep and bear arms if the Second Amendment were repealed because it wouldn't be any power over the arms of the people referenced in the Constitution. People of the United States, as a body, they ordained the Constitution and through it delegated limited and enumerated powers to their states in the form of their state constitutions and the United States through the U.S. Constitution for the use of those respective governments regarding the arms of the militia. Also, the power to prevent the infringement of their right to keep and bear them generally. 
the people have power over their personal property, their arms, regardless of their service in the militia or the military. People in the U.S. Army, from my understanding, they are perfectly within their liberty to own arms beyond those that belong to the United States government that they employ in their active service. Regardless of the use by the federal government or the state governments, the people retain that right. You have the people generally, for example, in the southern states or mountainous regions particularly, you'd find that an inordinate number of the citizens might be armed with rifles, especially those that were more inclined to hunting. The rifles were fully approved by the militia laws, but the citizens in the mountain regions didn't have rifles necessarily because of the militia laws. They had them because they hunted. For example, Davy Crockett hunted bears, and he used rifles to do it. But the rifle that he owned and used to make a living when he was a bear hunter was also a weapon that was approved for his use at militia musters. This gets to the well-regulated part, as in how does one determine whether the militia can perform its constitutionally assigned duties? The laws establish a uniformity among the militia, but the people themselves, if they're not otherwise armed by the federal government or by the state, then they have to arm themselves. The federal law says that the men have to provide themselves with these arms, particularly for the musters and training and, and when they're called forth. doesn't say they have to buy one. doesn't say they have to draw one from the government just says they have to provide themselves. Fair enough. But how hard was it to obtain a rifle or a musket in those days? There was a resale and used old muskets. You could see newspaper advertisements for old guns so that uh, people would buy them and take them to militia musters. But there's also, by the 1830s and 40s, a lot of caricatures of the militia system of men arriving at musters with sticks or brooms. To a certain extent, there was some what they called fusileering, where men were protesting their militia duty by appearing as such. The United States has a power and jurisdiction over its property and armaments, and the states have a power over their property and armaments. But then you have the people, and they, of course, have personal property, namely their own armaments. We saw this during the Second Seminole War. There were cases, of course, in the Seminole War among the other conflicts of the period where militia were organized and had no means of procuring government weapons of the regulation type. And in those cases, the militia would use their private weapons, shotguns, fouling pieces, and rifles. General Call's brigade in 1835, in the earliest campaigns of the Florida War, would be an example. The federal government did loan the territory a number of muskets, but it wasn't enough to outfit the entirety of the Florida militia. A large proportion of them went forth with privately owned weapons. Obviously, those weapons, when they were mustered out of service, they retained them because they were personal property. To inform our American understanding of keeping and bearing arms, how did the concept of keeping and bearing arms change over the years in Great Britain? Going back to Great Britain, where, again, most of their arms laws over time review them and see that it's based on what we would today call political correctness, to use a modern term. But you'll see it changes over time in England where different groups were in the ascendant on a political level and then the other group is suppressed and the other one rises. Perhaps that's inevitable in human government, but the distinction here in the United States is the intention was to be universal. If you were a free man in the United States, yes, whether you were practically homeless or whether you were the wealthiest in your state, 
you were still subject to the militia laws, were still subject to all the laws. Of course, the great distinction was between a free man and an enslaved person who was not free, but that distinction was eliminated by the 13th and the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. And thereafter, the freedmen, specifically the freedmen, were given freedmen status, and that there already was a large number of black freed before 1861. The Constitution was modified to guarantee the free status of the balance. So all the provisions of the Second Amendment unquestionably had a jurisdiction over every American 65, certainly, absolutely, without question. How distinctive was the American militia predicated on each citizen's ability to keep and bear arms versus British or European understanding? British and European countries all had militia systems going back to ancient times, even before the feudal period. In Britain, you had the feared, F-Y-R-D, which was the militia of Great Britain's various tribes in the post, well, not tribes any longer, but what civil government reigned after the Roman practically tribal imposed. The villages formed a militia company during the post-Roman era when you had wars against the Vikings and the Danes. Usually it was found that the militia or the feared was not necessarily a match the Danes, but they were capable of greater organization, and that's evidence that the Battle of Ethandine, where Alfred the Great uh, formed the Great Third, in other words, organized the militia of multiple dicks throughout England and achieved a significant battle victory against the Vikings, and uh, literally created England thereby. So in other words, the militia of English townships created what we now know as racking together. Well, let's skip the intervening period into 1775, where you have 13 separate North American colonies of Great Britain, and each of them has its own militias. Now, the right to keep and bear arms under the British was very limited. It changed over time. The British don't have a, they call it a constitution, but it's not entirely written. It includes unwritten portions, and that part can be the sticky part. But from the 1680s, the right to bear arms in Britain was predicated upon political correctness. So at different times in history, if you were a Catholic, you couldn't have, you couldn't be armed in any way. And other times, if you were a Baptist, you couldn't have a weapon, and so forth. So you have these determinations on the condition of your participation in the militia as an armed citizen or subject, as it were, is largely based upon your cooperation with the powers that be. Namely, are you cooperative with the of England, through which most people paid their taxes, British government, etc.? Because if you were a recusant and you did not participate with the Church of England, then you also lost many of your civil rights, including the right to bear arms or people bear arms. What we turned around during our revolution in 1776, we declared ourselves independent from Great Britain. The militias of the states subsequently were different than the British. In Maryland, it didn't matter whether you were a Roman Catholic or a Protestant and somebody that wasn't even necessarily a believer. In fact, there were many American Jews during the American Revolution that bore arms during the American Revolution. So even Jews had the right to keep and bear arms as citizens and militiamen in the American republics of the states and also later the larger national republic formed by our current constitution. What was the understanding of this right at the time of the adoption of the U.S. Constitution? When the new constitution was put into effect, 
encoded the right to keep and bear arms as the Second Amendment there too, and what we call the Bill of Rights, although again, these amendments are fixed and integral part of the custom has been almost an English mode to refer to them as a Bill of Rights. The right to keep and bear arms is enumerated that makes it a national public issue. Your right to keep and bear arms enumerated the Second Amendment is having essentially a public purpose. It clarifies to the federal government that is federal authorities also the free states and their well-regulated militia, much less the armed people themselves. What written sources are there to help us understand what the amendment's framers intended? There are some notices in Madison's notes and so forth. When the convention and the government working out the language of the Second Amendment, it was not haphazard. Madison chose his words very carefully as a compromise measure by and large. More importantly, when you read the ratifying debates by the various states that were arguing about ratifying before the public votes of the people had and so forth in some states, there was a lot of debate about it. Eliot's debates was published a long time ago. And some of them are online. You can read about the debates about the Second Amendment, among others, uh, constitutional issues at that time in the 90s. What did some of the Founding Fathers say in a positive fashion about the necessity for what became the Second Amendment? The Second Amendment was pleasing to Mr. Jefferson and others of the time in the late 1700s. Thomas Jefferson, after Shays Rebellion, noted that his hope was that the new Constitution and its provisions would not in any way infringe upon the people's right to arm themselves. Jefferson, again, the strongest reason for the people to retain the right to keep and bear arms is at last resort to protect themselves against tyranny in government. Now, that's tyranny in government. Notice that he didn't say government itself because the militia doesn't contradict the laws or the constitutions, usurpations of power that are the difficulty. And other founders had to say? Washington said a free people ought to be armed. Richard Henry Lee, to preserve liberty, is essential that the whole body of the people always possess arms and be taught alike, especially when young, how to use them. And again, the militia is important in that because the militia is a means of teaching the whole people alike how to employ their arms in their correct constitutional modes. The point that Richard Henry Lee was making, that the militia works best for its constitutional modes and within the states individually and within the entire United States together when it is uniform in some mode. If the militia of New York is identical in its arms organization and discipline to the militia of Georgia, without so much distinction between them, they could be more easily organized by law and utilized by the U.S. government from the Federalist Papers, number 46, Americans have the right and advantage of being armed, unlike the citizens of other countries whose governments are afraid to trust the people with arms. Yes, Federalist, number 46. John Adams had something to say about the difference between the general militia and a select militia. Now, at the same time, the states were relying principally upon militia volunteer companies, a select militia, to use John Adams' words, the former president was, by the 1820s, he made comment in a letter relative to the militia system that was designed to have a general action and that when a select militia replaces the general one, that would be a danger to the republic, was the view of John Adams. How much is the right to keep and bear arms a revolutionary concept in human affairs? So I'm going to reiterate this beyond just the single amendment. The British government 
while it's considered constitutional, and you see the reference to it, the government itself is not established under a specific single supreme law necessarily. They have a sort of Bill of Rights. They have a royal court, the parliament, and so forth. But in the United States, the revolutionary system was that the government itself is established by the supreme law. The government has sovereignty, but the sovereignty that it holds is based upon the powers that are delegated through what? Through the supreme law, which we call the Constitution. And the supreme law gets its authority from the people. Constitutional civil government and the mode that was enacted it is somewhat revolutionary. I recommend John Adams's writing from the late 1700s. He did a thorough examination of the history of human Republican government. And during his examination, he demonstrates why are they gone? Why don't they last? And so that was an example of why our Republican system in the state and federal levels is the way it is. At least at that time, it was predicated on the idea of looking into the lessons, the republics of past history, and seeing how they had destroyed themselves. And one of the key components that became evident was in each case, the Republic had replaced the armed citizen with a standing military force of some kind. And that was universal observation. And so you'll see that reiterated through your ears of the early Republic, the notification that a standing army, if you can do without it, you probably should. If you can't do without it, then you should have one that at least is under the authority of civil government. As in our systems, we've always essentially had regular troops under the Constitution, and we've considered it necessary. It doesn't negate the lessons that John Adams and others were pointing out. If the government, for some reason, doesn't have any money, one day, then it won't have a regular army, whether it wants one or not, correct? Essentially, you'll see that once a government relies upon a standing army, the government to generate a certain revenue to pay for that army needs to arm it in a very specific way to combat particular enemies. That can get very expensive and very difficult. See the historical examples that Adams lays out. One after another, the republics would... I mean, Rome is the greatest example. By the end, it was ending army. But when the Roman money is worthless, there is no Roman army and there's no Roman government. Shifting gears now from founders and philosophy to how did these concepts fare under fire? What does it mean in the Second Amendment where it talks about the security of a free state? But you'll notice it mentions that the well-regulated militia is necessary to the security of the free state. It doesn't say the state alone. It's the free state. We also recognize what do you have when you have a militia that is ill-regulated? Well, then the suggestion obviously then would be that the security of the free state is very imperfect. And therein, if there is no militia at all, the people's right to keep and bear arms becomes even more important, doesn't it? We have from the revolution alone multitudes of occasions in which the United States authorities, the continental authorities, would first be defeated. The continental forces, say, in the south are crushed. And then several states of the Union were then totally overwhelmed, like Georgia and South Carolina. And with the state governments being scattered, the state militia is scattered as well. There's no longer a state to keep them organized, to commission the officers, to regulate them. And so you had the formation of partisan corps within the occupied states. President Jackson himself, as it, along with his brother and his neighbors in the Waxhaws District in South Carolina, during that crisis period, they joined with the partisan corps of William Davies and associated at times with General Sumter's 
partisans. Leave it the Battle of Hanging Rock was the first combat that President Jackson came anywhere near to. Although he was not a combatant at the battle, he evidently was within earshot of it. His partisan corps was just armed people. The custom is to refer to them as militia, but considering that the state of South Carolina's government is essentially disorganized by the British occupation operations, they technically weren't state militia. They were acting essentially as a, a partisan force. You have individual Americans at the same time employing their right to keep and bear arms for federal purposes as well. Robert Sallett of South Georgia in Liberty County, Georgia, is credited as being the lone patriot continuing the struggle for the cause of Congress in that district and late in the war during its occupation by the British. The British actually, once they reinstalled royal government over those states, they actually reorganized the state militias into a royal force. So when Robert Sallett would not join the royal militia of Georgia, became essentially an outlaw, but he's considered a patriot for the American cause. And in fact, his name is even mentioned on a plaque commemorating his patriotic services as an armed person of the United States on a U.S. military base in Georgia. There's also the occasions where even women and children employed arms against British and Indian raiders during the Revolution, etc. Tell us about the fortuitous incident from the American Revolutionary War, where unaffiliated partisans played a crucial part with a capture of strategic importance. Probably the best single occasion we have would be the capture of the British agent John Andre, communicating with General Benedict Arnold of the Continental Army to arrange for his treason to deliver West Point over to the British in defenses. On that particular occasion, Andre had the letters on him to bring back to the British forces occupying New York to confirm the arrangement. He was accosted by three armed men in the countryside. These armed men, the reference frequently is given that they were militia, but in fact they were not. The local militia company under Lieutenant Peacock had actually just days before been totally broken up by the British Army, sweeping the district and arresting the militia. Now, one of those militiamen subsequently escaped, and when he came back into the district, he found that some of the citizens that remained and armed themselves and were going to stake out along the roads. And he joined with them. He technically was in the militia, but he was, was not acting so. His company disorganized. So Major Andre evidently felt he had a clear path to New York and was riding alone. Freeman captured him. And of course, they found the papers upon him so were turned over to the Continental Army, exposed Arnold's treason. Arnold, of course, escaped and joined the British forces during the balance of the war. But those three armed citizens acting concurrently with the Patriot cause, since they weren't militia and they were not soldiers, Congress had to vote to award them silver medals for doing their duty in that occasion. How important is it to the security of a free state for its citizens to be able to keep and bear arms? One of the things about the Second Amendment, when you look at it carefully, you'll see that the well-regulated militia is necessary to the security of the free state. So your question is predicated on the idea that the state where the federal government in some manner are not capable or do not recognize your particular interest in, in self-defense or what have you, well, again, the free state would be, and it would initially use the well-regulated militia to guarantee your right to keep and bear arms, among other rights. Because remember, the Constitution is predicated on its militia clause. The militia, one of its duties on a federal level is to enforce federal laws. You know, on a state level, it's to enforce state laws. If you have a state that isn't free, obviously it wouldn't well-regulate its militia. 
nor would it guarantee your right to keep and bear arms for lawful purposes. That's all encoded in that very brief Second Amendment in itself describing that circumstance. How is malicious service, the right to keep and bear arms, integral with the idea of maintaining the security of a free state? The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed in the United States via the security of a free state. Because where the right of the people generally to keep and bear arms is infringed, there consequently is no well-regulated militia defending it, organized discipline and armed by law. And we might suppose that the consequence would be insecurity in a free state. Where can we find American historical examples of this? I usually suggest reading back to the revolution and particularly about the areas of British occupation. If we consider the British occupied areas, Georgia was conquered by the British. It's no longer a free state. So the militia is no longer well regulated. Why? Because it's no longer enforcing the laws, it's enforcing the arbitrary laws of a royal governor. And so obviously at that point, Mr. Sallet and other Georgians, Georgia patriots, were in a position where they did not have their own arms. They had to arm themselves. So and blacksmiths were making swords and uh, pitchforks into swords, as it were. Jesse, you mentioned that regardless of the firearms they brought to a muster, the militiamen still had to be able to do the manual of arms with them. How did this work out? Generally, the militia had to employ the same tactical as the army. That wasn't necessarily a problem when used von Steiben's tactic from 1779, because that was a very simple system designed for troops that were not essentially well-versed in military tactics. And so it was a good system for militia. Also, in the way it formed units, it didn't necessarily require a company or a battalion to have a big number of men. In fact, there's a limit to it. I believe that a battalion, you could form 80 files, rank and file, then you had a battalion. If you had less than 80 files, it wasn't a battalion. It had to be organized like a company. So over 80 files, it's more than one company and could be organized like a battalion, and so on and so on, up to 60 files. The reason that was important was when a militia muster came around, the militia captains could never tell how many men were going to show up for it. So even if they had, you know, 70 enrolled in their company, at any individual muster, there's no guarantee that all 70 are going to show up. And so having a system like von Steiben's was so fixed, that's actually pretty handy. Why did training in Scott's military tactics create problems for the militia? Unfortunately, after 1820, the U.S. government required all the militia to train by General Scott's tactics as were used by the regular army and one of those modern French systems. These systems are far more complex than von Steiben's. And so it led to a general disgust with military musters because even the mode of forming the company into two ranks makes a Rubik's Cube look similar. And unfortunately, there's not even a diagram to help you. You have to read the narrative to try to figure it out. So frequently, the militia companies after 1820 the captain would just stand there and read the volume while stood there and listen, because none of them had the slightest clue about what was being described. And of course, the advantage the regular army had, it placed its officer cadets into a four-year training camp, literally, of Scott's tactics at the West Point Military Academy. They came out, they already knew it backwards and forward in all of its complexities. In fairness to General Scott, 1826, under some orders, he did produce a militia abstract of his tactics and the federal government approved it and actually printed tens of thousands of copies distributed to the territories for their militia officers, a simplification of the Scots tactics. I wouldn't call it a perfect simplification. It could have been a lot simpler, 
1835, the Army adopted a new system of Scott's tactics, superseded all of those, including the abstract. What was the advantage of this new version? The advantage in the new system of 1835 was it was in three volumes, and that was convinced that a militia captain would any more than the first volume. So in other words, he wouldn't have to concern himself about buying two other volumes of battalion, brigade evolutions, and so forth. But the federal government never produced copies of Scott's 1835 for distribution to the militia generally. Why wasn't there a greater distribution to the militia? Because by 1835, the political interests of the two major parties were largely on their way toward promoting the idea that if you elect us, you won't have to drill anymore. So they began emphasizing more or less the organization of volunteer companies who, in order to avoid a service with their local district company, might be poor men, might be rich men, might be in between, young men that were really enthusiastic could combine within their battalion or regiment brigade district and form their own company. And in order to do this, most states allowed this to a limited degree so long as this volunteer company procured a military uniform and wore it whenever it was in public status. So you've seen perhaps lithographs of the dressed uh, militia corps whose uniforms rival even the U.S. Army's sartorial splendor. These are the volunteer militia of the states that essentially the states preferred over enforcing the federal laws. What made those volunteer companies a good investment by the state for providing arms to? Because those companies actually, number one, they were compiled of young men generally. They were young men that were enthusiastic to serve, and so they had to really purchase their own uniforms. More frequently, they would drill as a matter of a hobby, whereas the average man only drilled whenever legally bound to do so, which was about three hours a day, four times a year. The volunteer corps would frequently drill on their own, even outside of the legally required muster, you see so that when they did muster, they would have mastered Scott's tactics, whereas the common militia struggled. How did things turn out in the Seminole Wars? During the Seminole Wars, when the Florida militia was mustered into federal service as militia or as volunteer troops, they were frequently armed with federal weapons for their periods of service. When the Seminole War broke out, the federal government had arsenals throughout the country stocked with federal owned weapons, mostly War of 1812 surplus, obviously some Revolutionary War era material, since the technology of the firelock musket had not altered to any great degree since the 1770s, accoutrements, etc. When General Winfield Scott was given command in January of 1836 to build a force of volunteer troops from the several states to defeat the Seminoles, which campaign, of course, failed signally, his letters to the various governors were to raise by drafts or volunteers the corps that were required, and that they would, of course, be armed from the federal arsenals, which theoretically had all of the weapons and equipment that any U.S. volunteer personnel would need. Consequently, the militia arms of the men wouldn't be necessary, nor would the states have to supply the weapons. However, what was found was that many of these stocks in the federal arsenals were very poor. At, not that they hadn't been maintained well, but that the, many of the guns were lacking bayonets. They were lacking the correct accoutrements, pick and brushes to maintain the lock. There's just large stocks of muskets, but without the necessary equipage to go with them to operate them. And at least in the case of South Carolina, 
the U.S. Army asked the state to provide from its arsenals accoutrements to the South Carolina volunteers for federal service. And the promise was that the United States government would make good the quantity. They wouldn't buy them from them, but the federal government from its next year's ordinance purchases would reimburse the state by providing them a set of brand new accoutrements. So we're going to assume that what the state had was war rating 12 era surplus. You had the South Carolina volunteers come to Florida with state of South Carolina equipment to a certain extent. But it was for federal service, and in return for that equipment, the federal government provided the state with new equipment. Now, a lot of that older state stuff evidently remained in Florida and in armories here. And as the volunteer troops rotated out of Florida, the federal weapons would be issued to the volunteers as they arrived. And when they left, they would turn them in. Florida used up a lot of older equipment. Archaeologists and avocational relic hunters have frequently found, for example, the 1808-style bayonet scabbard belt plate from the musket accoutrements. It's oval and brass, and it has no marking. And that was the standard one after about 1808, and was largely produced during the War of 1812 in huge numbers. But by the 1830s, the Army was using a more ornate type, a circular brass belt plate with an eagle on it and so forth. And while some of those are found at historical sites, the older 1808 one has been found more often. In other words, these would have been accoutrements that were drawn from the arsenals. It bears reminding, citizens fighting back Seminole raids were nevertheless not part of the territorial militia or the federal volunteers. That became contentious, by the way, after the Seminole War was ending. Many of the Florida militia units that had patrolled a significant amount against Seminole Raiders. Many of them felt that they should receive active duty pay for campaigning for a week or two weeks to, to track down the Raiders. But if they were not actually mustered into territorial or U.S. service, they were not due pay. So that caused some confusion and hard feeling a little bit for some of those issues. The United States, by and large, was very liberal about that, but there were cases where they said, you know, we're willing to go a certain level with that, but you're claiming that uh, just because this militia company went out on essentially posse, you know, doesn't mean you're in federal service and we can pay them. But you find a lot of that in the various state papers and complaints in newspapers of the 1840s, particularly about back pay and arguments do what pay for what militia duty. But... It's important to keep in mind that militia duty, if the state and federal government didn't have laws that allowed for the pay of militia for their active citizenry were still due to abide the calling forth and do the service, whether they were paid for it, it was a courtesy that extended by civil governments and the federal government to allow them the same pay as the U.S. Army while they were inactive. Otherwise, the militiamen came to muster or when he was otherwise called out for public emergency, was not due any pay considered a civic service. How close is that to a French levy and mass? A levy and mass. But you see, there's a distinction between the militia system and a levy and mass. The militia is neither compulsory, but nor is it voluntary. A levy and mass, like the French Revolutionary Forces, essentially levied troops, turned the citizen with soldier and said, you're not true. You're subject to the war powers of the government. The militia system is different. In other words, the militia and troops are very distinct. The Constitution makes it pretty clear. Consequently, if the U.S. government can't form an army to the job, it can call you forth to do it as militia. 
What issues were there with somebody who answered the call for the muster but was ill-dressed? In 1840, a Massachusetts legal treatment that the Constitution, for example, doesn't give the federal government authority over the uniform of the militia, only its arms organization. And consequently, the states or the people have to outfit the militia. If you have a case in point of people, some of the citizenry, who have no scruple against bearing arms, but for whatever reason would not wear a uniform, well, that doesn't matter. The government will get you to do the job. If a battle needs to be fought and the government can't get troops to do it, can't afford them, can't raise them, then the Constitution makes clear that the militia could be called forth to do it. The distinction would be that they can't give them uniforms and flags and things like that, but could give them arms, discipline, and organization to do it. And therefore, when you see historically references to the militia, you'll notice they're never in a uniform depicted in some kind of hunting dress if they're rural or even dressed like bankers if they're in the city. The important thing was the service rank, not the regular military mode of the personnel. We have the unfortunate reality that if the federal government were in a position and it needed militia from a state, which for whatever reason was not capable of answering the call as a state, the 1795 Act, which subsidiary to that of 1792, that allowed the president to call directly on militia to federal service. In other words, the governors weren't cooperative for whatever reason. The president could call upon any company commander, regimental, battalion, division commander, and call them forth to federal service whenever he saw fit within the boundaries of the law. What you'll find is politically, presidents are very timid about employing that power because in our system, particularly after 1820, be considered something like political suicide to have used that power rather than to have the president go through the state government to call forth militia. But that's not necessary. Under the 1795 Act, the president could call them forth, have to ask the governors, et cetera, et cetera. After the 1820s, that died off. The idea that the president had that power was largely ignored. When does the government have the power to levy troops? Imagine, let's imagine, a situation where the president calls forth a regiment of militia in a given state to deal with a, in a lawful manner. It doesn't respond. And in fact, no regiment militia in the state responds. What does the president do at that point? That's where you have the power to levy troops. And they used that term in the 1790 uh, levies. They called levied troops levies, distinguished them from regular troops who were enlisted as volunteers. And they also used levies to militia and volunteer troops. But you won't see levies used much until the, again, the war between the states when conscription was resorted to, but where the militia in a state no longer responds directly to the president, you still have the armed people. And so the Congress can pass an act to allow the president to raise a corps of Tennessee mounted riflemen or whatever from volunteers from people. But having the power to levy means you necessarily need them to volunteer. I don't want to get it too deep into the subject, but we were fighting the Northwestern Indians. When troops were levied, that literally meant the president called on Pennsylvania and says, I need a thousand men. They had to be produced. And usually the governors would call out part of their militia and then have a draft or call for volunteers to fill it. While we really only resorted to national conscription in the 1960s, by no means was it rare for, I mean, and everybody understood this, when the government, state or federal, needed personnel, it was going to get them. 
and you owed that service. And if they called upon you directly, then you had to obey. If you did not obey, if you were called forth and you didn't step forward or present yourself, you did subject yourself to criminal punishment in the civil courts. Some people would argue, well, I didn't muster, I didn't show up, and so you can't court-martial me because I didn't show up. Well, in the militia system, the militia is outside of the war powers of the government to a certain degree. While the president is their commander-in-chief when they're in federal service, they're not troops, so they're still allies, even though they have the same chain of command through the president. That being said, if the president called you forth and you said, I'm not going to do it, you were hedging your bets that by not mustering in, they couldn't court-martial you. It didn't matter. You would be subject to civil fines. There was some interesting Supreme Court cases about this after the War of 1812. Uh, were fellows who skipped off from their calls. They were safe when the war ended, and they got fined both federal and state authorities, criminal charges for disobeying a direct calling forth for their military service personally, the state and federal government. How did the militia straddle the line between voluntary and compulsory service? It's good to remember that the militia system is such that it's neither voluntary nor compulsory. As one British author put it 200 years ago, a militia system is best understood like the service that a son owes to his father, more so than what he called a mercenary force. So while the militia could be paid for active duty, again, it was a service that was owed whether they paid you or gave you any food or a gun or not. You were subject to it. We have that in a measure today, posse comitatus. The military is not enforced particular laws. You could still be deputized at a time by a, your sheriff or whatever. It's not dissimilar from that process of being deputized. The president would just have a federal marshal say, you know, raise your right hand. You'd be mustered into federal service to repel invasion, enforce the laws of the union insurrection. And there you have it. Although specifically provided for in the federal and state constitutions, militia as a service seemed to fall out of favor as the years of the republic went on. The 1792 law directs that each militiaman has a musket or a rifle, provides himself with one. Into the 19th century, there was a growing dissatisfaction with the militia system. Many people didn't want to serve in it any longer. Pecuniary interests were brought up frequently that the public is losing revenue on the Saturdays in which they have to muster. Four Saturdays a, a year generally allowed for three hours of discipline at each muster. Many men probably got something less than 12 hours a year of instruction under arms. But even then, by the 1820s, there were strong public interests developing the idea to liberate the people from their militia burden, if you see how they were beginning to portray it. They'd call it a burden in the sense that if you did not muster, of course, you'd have to pay fines or a tax. You know, what could be better? You don't pay the fine or the tax, and you don't have to muster or provide yourself with the lawfully required weapons. By the 1850s, most states were not enforcing the 1792 militia law to any great extent. And some states had even passed laws specifically stating that the common militia, when they said common militia, they generally meant the militia as organized and to be disciplined according to the federal law, that the state, I remember in Kentucky particularly, there was there was a law in the 1850s that said they will no longer have to muster and drill. And then there was another law shortly after that said, no, they, they will. And then I believe they repealed that one again. What body makes up the militia? 
the community itself would be the people. Among those, a portion would be armed, organized, and disciplined for the constitutional purposes of the states in the United States. 200 years ago, the understanding was that the states alone regulated their militia, the well-regulated militia, but that they did so according to their own constitutions and laws, but also according to the laws established by Congress providing for arms, organization, and discipline. Consequently, while prepared to serve the purpose of their states, these same militia, these same personnel and units were prepared for calling forth to repel invasions, resist insurrections, and enforce the laws of the Union. In its capacity, the United States government, again, governed such militia as are mustered into federal service. The Second Amendment to the Constitution declares such a well-regulated militia as this as necessary to the security of a free state. We bet back and forth, this term militia. Jesse, what does the term mean? Well, we go back to the terminology itself. Some dictionaries frequently will state that the word comes from the term, the ancient term miles, meaning a soldier. It doesn't really appear to be correct. Miles sounds very um, feudalistic, medieval, and, and gallant, but it seems to have been a, essentially a Roman distinction between the people in their domestic situation, domi versus militia. So the people in their domestic concerns would regard their personal business, farms, their homes, etc. And then in their militia function, they would be serving a military purpose. These militias are largely organized by law. And Great Britain, the early British, they referred to their militia as the feared, F-Y-R-D, was only several centuries ago. They adopted the continental terminology of militia over the feared. It's the same thing. The people under arms, and particularly for military purposes. What do we mean when we say the militia exists, that it predates the Constitution, predates the country? In 1776, with the Declaration of Independence and the colonies establishing themselves as states, they retained the militia that they inherited, and so the constitutions that were adopted for those states similarly make use of the militia that was pre-existing. What guarantees the militia's existence? It's provided for by law, but it exists regardless of its actual legal condition. For an example, at the present time, laws in the United States include both an organized militia, which principally is the National Guards, but also the unorganized militia, which is essentially everyone else subject potentially to militia services. So happens that a large proportion of the unorganized militia are probably unarmed, largely undisciplined, so are in an unorganized state of organization, but the militia still exist in that capacity. Anytime Congress has the power to employ its delegated powers to provide by law for the arms, discipline, and organization of the whole body of the militia of the United States, if it doesn't employ this power to its fullest extent today, was considered to have largely done so after the 1790s, from the 1792 militia law, which required, of course, all able-bodied white men, 18 to 45, to not only arm themselves with military-type weapons, muskets or rifles, but also organized into companies, battalions, regiments, brigades, and divisions, and that the states had to maintain these organizations, commanded them, the governors being their commander-in-chiefs, until such time as these militias would be called forth by the President of the United States and during their federal service would be governed by the United States. 
But where the United States doesn't employ its power over the militia to its fullest extent, it doesn't necessarily inhibit the actions of the states to well regulate their militia, organized or unorganized, within their jurisdiction. As John Marshall noted to the Virginia Ratifying Convention of the Constitution, if the federal government chose not to arm the militia, then we will arm them ourselves. When I hear you put forward an explanation for what the Second Amendment means, it all seems quite straightforward, but not everyone agrees. I know that there is currently a significant argument over the purpose and meaning of the Second Amendment. I would reference the Federalist Papers as well as the 1930s, see the, the period conception of these ideas. We've discussed the Founders' period conception of these ideas. What was that period conception a half century or so later? The period conception is probably best described in the commentaries on the Constitution by Justice Joseph Story of the Supreme Court. In his third volume, he notes the Second Amendment and its relation to the militia and the right to keep and bear arms. And he makes brief commentary about it as the palladium of American liberty, etc. Was this published during the time of the Second Seminole War? Yes, in the 1830s, he published this multi-volume commentaries on the Constitution. He dedicated it to Chief Justice Marshall. He didn't always agree with Chief Justice Marshall, and there was some significant disagreement, but there was a respect. And we would hazard that stories, commentaries on the Constitution were in large measure any questions he might have had. He certainly had the ear of Chief Justice Marshall to discuss these issues. When the volumes came out, they were very popular, and while there's reason to disagree with some of his conclusions, potentially, you compare them specifically, say, against the Federalist Papers of Hamilton and Madison, etc., by and large, it's an interesting and very useful historical source, and also, to a certain degree, of the understanding of the Constitution and the rationale of story in his subsistence, some of which are pretty controversial. That was then, and citizens had a reasonable expectation for what their responsibilities as citizens were vis-a-vis the militia. Not so much today. Since the militia system has been largely moribund, in other words, the federal government and states relied for the last century on unorganized militias. The result is that I think a large number of the able-bodied in the public are not aware that they're actually still subject to various militia laws of these states. Any final thoughts as we wrap up here, Jesse? I would especially recommend folks look into the Federalist Papers by Mr. Hamilton, Madison, etc. I would recommend Eliot's debates relative to the ratifications of the U.S. Constitution by the various states. Those debates are very interesting and valuable to see the mindset of the founding generation during the ratification of the Constitution. Jesse Marshall, thanks for joining us once again for the Seminole Wars Authority. Well, thank you, Patrick. This podcast is copyright 2022, the Seminole Wars Foundation, all rights reserved. Find us on the web at seminolewars.podbean.com or seminolewars.us. Front and back bumper music courtesy of the U.S. Navy Band.